1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Valentine's Day special of Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like nonsense, dust,
2: or gloom, or hearts, arrows, eros, letters, rings, promises. Since it's Valentine's Day, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam? Who knew... That the history of nonsense is in fact all about political satire, improvised jazz and children's literature. Or that the history of Rhodes is all about the Roman Empire, dreams and conquest. Mm, Well, the man sitting opposite
1: me is the Cupid of history itself. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at
2: Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. How are you? Very well. Good. Good. And the man sitting opposite me, uh, as you already know, uh, is the Casanova of Catalogues. I was going to say Casanova of Chronicles. Which would you prefer? Crime. Crime. The Casanova. <laughs> okay, historical Cas- crime. Casanova of, of historical crime. It's the famous historical adventurer, the truly wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. Hello, James. Well, um, each week we kind of take a crazy
1: subject oozing with historical significance that doesn't initially appear that it is oozing with historical significance. And we dissect it, don't we? We explore we do. it. And we do. this week we are... None. It. We are doing a special on the history of love because it's Valentine's Day, and I've got some quite exciting things. To this talk. is my
2: idea. I love, I love love.
1: It's your idea. I love the history of love. Or it's, your, your okay, well, it's your idea. Okay, well, because it's your idea, off the top of your head. My head. <laughs> <laughs> what do we oh, think? What do we think about the, the victory about the of love? Um, a history
2: of love uh, from the perspective of the historian. Go. It's it's the history of emotions. We've done the history of tears. Mm. So it's the history of it's the history of love. It's the history of affection. It is the history of romance. It's the history of family life. It's thinking about different forms of love. Yeah. You know, so you think about how you love different kinds of things. It's about interpersonal relationships. It's about it's about loving things. The love of wine. The love of food. The love of cheese. Um, it's about thinking about how we define it so how we think about it how as historians do we capture it do we recover it Ah. you know how do we reconstruct it you know because if you think about it love can be explained in sort of biological chemical terms in that it triggers certain sort of feelings in the body it can also be explained in psychological terms and I'll talk a little bit about that later on Um, but how does that manifest itself in the historical records so what kinds of sources survive what kind of experience do people have of those feelings how do they express them think about the love letter the lovering you think about institutionalized love so the marriage um, or the love that one has for children Mm -hmm. you know those kinds of those kinds of of things Um, think about enduring love love over a long time how love has changed chronologically you know, as we move from the ancient world into the medieval, into the Renaissance, early modern, you know, and beyond, and think about how love across continents, across borders, across religions operates so over time, you know, and how different, how different cultures have, have, have understood and expressed um, and interpreted love. Um, there's also, you know, think about how the church you know, looks at love compared with the sort of romantic literary, sort of cultural tradition. Mm, the laws of, of love what's allowed, of what, what is Yeah, yeah, and then and then there's you know the then then sort of hidden love, you know, forbidden love, mm. uh, you know, um, or unrequited love. Yeah, you know, um, it's so central to, to the the human experience, isn't it's, it? It's so central, and they and those and they are such visceral feelings of of love. Yeah. But it's it's immediately
1: clear, I think, that what a significantly massive challenge it is for the historian and also how important it is for us to be able to recover it and to to go about thinking about it. And I think the basic point is, of course, that it's something that we we say very often in in all of our topics, all of our podcasts, is that whatever subject it is, it varies across time, it varies across space, it varies according to who was experiencing it, how they experienced it. Uh, how they recorded their experience, um, and it's actually because it's so personal. It's it is an enormous subject, and that yeah. for me makes it particularly exciting. Yeah, yeah, very good. I'm going to be talking about um, the, uh, I'm talking about curating love. Ooh, what yeah. do you think, What do you mean by that? Um, I mean I know what curating means, you know, and what, I know what love means. Yes. But... So so I I started. Off, I thought okay, I'm going to think about the history of love. But my tra- my good training as an archaeologist said okay, what about the archaeology of love? because um, I, I knew I could rely on you to do a good bit of history. So I've been thinking yeah. about the archaeology of love, which is really, really cool. And you, you might want... Um, I first thought, okay, um, I bet there's some historical graffiti. And I've yeah. got actually graffiti. We've done a podium on graffiti. We so regularly come back to oh, it as well. Oh, gosh. But yes. um, if you go to uh, lots of Roman sites, uh, great example, yeah. there's, um, there's yeah. all sorts of ancient love graffiti. And also, if you go around... Um, Places where graffiti is common. I I recently went to um, some amazing Second World War tunnels underneath uh, the town of Ramsgate in Kent, mm. which were built. Was that for your invasion? Yeah, for my invasion series. series. And um, they're, they're, these tunnels are dug through the chalk cliffs, and that means as you're walking along, there are huge lumps of chalk, and yeah. the walls are sort of concrete smooth. So yeah. you, you've got a perfect blackboard to write on, and. Yeah it became a kind of rite of passage for all of the young kids in Ramsgate to break into the tunnels and write their names on it. And one of the most common, it was basically completely covered in graffiti, but one of the most common forms of graffiti is love. So it's, um, you know,
2: initials in a heart or
1: yeah, the names of two people, someone for someone else. Yeah. And, um, uh, and a date. Yeah. Um, But I suddenly thought, no, we've done graffiti. I'm not going to think about that. I want to think about archaeology in a different sense of it. And so uh, I've, Going to be talking about this. I'm just going to lift this up and show you around. Ah, uh,
2: yes, a, a padlock. Describe that padlock. It is a padlock with names on it. Who are those mm-hmm. names? James and Lottie. Yeah, and, and it's a small padlock. A small. It's a small brass. Padlock from Wilco. Yeah, <laughs> are you, there are other providers of padlocks. <laughs> they've not spent a great deal of money no, on their no. padlock. It's quite a cheap
1: padlock for something that is designed to demonstrate. So, so It makes, makes, it makes me, commitment. me think of
2: Venice, the bridges in yeah, Venice okay. with.
1: Yeah, yeah Paris yeah. for me. Yes. Um, and it became it came a bit of. A, what we talk about here is this activity of two lovers. Uh, getting a padlock, writing their names on it, click it clipping it onto a bridge or railings yeah. or a fence, yeah. but usually a bridge, which is interesting for the symbolism of, of connecting yeah. two, yep. two things. Nice. Um, the Pont des Arts in Paris is the most yeah. famous one. And because mm-hmm. a railing collapsed there, because there were so many padlocks. Right. Um, it's, it's something that has its origins in the 1980s in Hungary right. and then became particularly famous uh, in the early years of the 21st century, 2006, um for an Italian author's novel called um, I Want You where the two lovers do exactly this. They mm. they, they get a padlock, write their names in it. So you, you click it onto the railing and then you throw the key into the river below.
2: Yeah. This raises all sorts oh, of. Oh, you throw the key away. You throw the ah. key away, right? And, um, so it's there forever. It's about. The it's kind of like a of votive offering. Yes. What I love about it is there's all Ooh, this, nice. this complex
1: story behind what's going on. So the two lovers find somewhere, probably a bridge, it links two things, it symbolizes the link. They, they, they want to demonstrate their commitment, they've bin the, been the key. Yeah. So now imagine, right, you're an archaeologist in 200 years' time and the bridge has been removed yes. and all the padlocks have gone. So all yes. you've got. Keys. Is keys. Yes. And you've got a 100 keys, maybe yes. you've got a 1,000 keys, you've got 5,000 keys, but you've got no idea yes. what's going on there. And so that I think it really, it, interestingly, it highlights the archaeological problem of trying to, to recreate things, particularly what we might call votive offerings, things yes. that have been thrown in. So to what extent does this activity of throwing the key into the water represent um, whether it's a commitment or... Um, or, or well, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that this the process of the votive offering can be immensely complex and it's very very difficult to recreate. To um, so it's, it's a good example of, of
2: the, the archaeological problems. And what generally. you couldn't do is connect it to the locks or the individuals, no. or so it would be a yeah. It's, you could, you could it's completely misinterpret it. It's basically a ritual. Yeah.
1: Yes. But um, uh, but the, the yes. complexity is of those rituals. Yes. It just reminds us just how yes. difficult it is to to recreate them. One of the things that fascinates me about this is the there's a real kind of dichotomy between people who like doing it Mm. and other people who loathe it and absolutely loathe it. So it's to do with the kind of public response to cultural heritage. How do you, how do you deal with this? If in your mind people are defacing the city's ancient buildings, ancient artifacts or whatever it might be, even even if it's for something as as harmless and pleasant as love, because you can't have something like the Pondes are collapsing. No, no. But, You you can then study this from the way that this love has been curated. So in uh, Paris, Melbourne, and New York, and Leeds in the UK, they've they've been removed. The locks have been removed. Um, In Leeds, they've been kept. And there's some, some wonderful images of all of these padlocks being curated. They're laid out on a table. They're being recorded. They're being photographed. And it's all advertised through the media and people who left a lock could go and pick it go up. Go and pick it up. Brilliant. I don't if you've prove my name's James or my no. name's Lottie. No, no, no. no, no. Um, but you can go and pick it up and people are coming back to collect their locks. It matters to them so much that they're doing Brilliant. that. So in other places they're just being removed completely. In Florence it's illegal. Right. Um, but in some cities, Verona and Moscow, what they've done—and this, I'm su- surely this is the best way of doing it—it's actively encouraged. But they're getting artists to create beautiful things mm. made out of railings, which you mm. can click your padlock to. Brilliant. So, so they're kind of harnessing it and 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 moving moving it forward to to to, to create modern sculptures of love padlocks rather than. Um, destroying or damaging the, the the cultural heritage of a city like the Pont des Arts. yeah brilliant um so that's one aspect I'm going to talk about another later that's one aspect so,
2: so of, I, of curating so love just, curating would I, I mean i I would go in a different direction with curating so and I would think about how a family or an individual might curate or archive a series of documents or memories about a loved one so the way in which you know you might quite quite a modern um Practice to preserve love letters.:, yep. you know as a way of, of memorializing a relationship, a love, keeping you know, all the sort of tokens from somebody. I have all I, I do that. I have all the sort of letters my wife. You know, wrote to me before we were married, yeah, uh, and after. I have the wine bottle from our wedding, mm-hmm. champagne bottle from our wedding. I have her shoes
0: yeah. from the night oh, we we've heard, first. We've heard, we've heard, heard, about, heard about the shoes yeah,
2: yeah. The, um, before, but um, but you know, and historically, um, people would have um, would have kept materials like that. I think of the, that extract in Samuel Pepys's diary. He's a favourite of ours, where he he gets into a real row with his wife. Elizabeth. Do you remember this? this? and um, they're, I can't remember what the row is about, but she, he storms into the room, picks up all her papers, um, and casts them into the fire, hmm. preserving only, I think, their marriage contract and something, and, and at a will, something like that. But he has basically cast all their love letters wow. that he sent into the fire um which on the one hand shows the way in which she was an archivist of their of their love they wrote love letters between each other and and she preserved that and felt that they were were important but also the way in which you know he's such a tempestuous character Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist Fitting into their schedule and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all
0: from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
2: Do that kind of act, especially for
1: someone who, quite, who, who writes a diary who's utterly committed yes. to, to yes. archiving himself and, and puts it
2: and puts it down in his in his diary. I mean, I think I suppose one of the things that I am really interested in, and I've taught courses on this, I've written books on it, is about love, the place of love within the family, mm. and so looking at the emotion of of love or affection within the family, um, not only in terms of Uh, the relationship between married couples and looking at why people marry and how that's changed over time and then the experience of marriage, but also then the kinds of feelings and affection that you might have for other family members, Um, notably the relationship between parents and children um, and how that changes, Uh, but also wider kin, you know, and, and... and how we, can, how we can look at that. And I suppose one of the ways of thinking about that is looking at marriage mm-hmm. and looking at the reasons for people marrying in the 15th through to 18th century and, and, and beyond. And certainly in Western traditions, um, the arranged marriage was fairly common um, throughout, a lot of that, throughout a lot of that period. And expectations were very different from the way in which we think about them nowadays. We have a very, certainly in Western society, we have a very sort of romanticized, individualistic notion of romantic love. A romantic love that, you know, that if you listen to the the biologists and the psychologists, that kind of romantic love that is connected to lust and physicality um, survives in that kind of pure form either for a sort of matter of weeks and months um, or, you know, a, a sort of from a year and a half to sort of three years. You know, it's something that then dies later on. Um, that, that's, that That's one of the sort of reasons why we marry nowadays. It's about that kind of, you know, that sort of sexual uh, attraction and passion um, that former societies and different cultures would see as ebbing away. Mm. And that, in fact you know there's a much more practical and serious reason for people to marry you know and and a different form of companionate love that survives so i think i think in certainly in western tradition from the from the sort of during the renaissance and beyond there is this sense that people marry um yes you need to like somebody you need not to be sort of disgusted by somebody but that there are all sorts of other considerations mutual attraction yes is one but also the sort of social political, financial all of those need to be you know in place and if you look at eastern traditions non non western traditions, the arranged marriage is still predominant you know and you look at you look at um rates of divorce in the West and they are exponentially high mm-hmm. you know, terrifically high because expectations of people going into marriage are totally unrealistic people just aren't prepared for it. Um, whereas in in non-Western traditions and historically, there has been this sense that basically love is something that you need to work at. There are different kinds of love, and this is something that psychologists talk about as well. Talk about there being different kinds of of, of you know of love that you know a companionate love that talk that needs intimacy and and you know and commitment. So love can be made up of all these different things. Mm. And it's, it's very interesting to have a look at how, in the past, at how different ideologies frame love. So you think about how the church, how the church teaches about love, which is very different from a kind of um, literary version of a sort of romantic love. You think about um, Romeo and Juliet. You think about the passion of Romeo Romeo when he meets Juliet for the first time is already in love with somebody else he meets her changes his mind and the two of them are these sort of they're described as these sort of you know these sort of tempestuous lovers um in a in a sense what shakespeare is saying there is that is that this this form of love that they have is so intense that it's almost akin to madness mm. and the fact that you know and the fact that at the end that the love is so tempestuous it destroys them, yeah. you know, says something really sort of profound about the nature of love. And you contrast that with something, with say the church's teaching on love, which is much more about companion, companionship. It's much more about a sort of shared sense of responsibilities. It's much more about that kind of later stage of love, once the sort of lust and the romance, you know, romance is always, you know, can always be there. But that kind of physicality and the sort of chemical sort of endorphins that you get that sort of, you know, that make you sort of short of breath and unable to eat and unable to sleep and all of that, once that has gone, it's that. It's the kind of, it's the, the sort of shared commitments, it's the intimacy, it's the bringing up children, running the household, the sh- your shared experiences. So love itself has its own history yeah. as it is experienced. So Absolutely. Not, not only is is is
1: love experienced differently across time and space, but to one person love changes
2: across and across a relationship it will not it will not stay the same and um, you know you should go out and read the sort of you know uh, sort of biological theory on this, yeah. these sort of different different stages, or go and look at look at what psychologists say about the both the of phases. which have a history as well. So both biological theory and psychological yes, absolutely. theory, absolutely, have their own history. Absolutely.
1: Oh, it's complicated, isn't it? It certainly is. So considering that you you can't do all of this, is there a particular part of the history of love you think, oh, I'd actually really like to to, to spend well, I've some ri- time? Well, I've written
2: I've written I've written a lot on it. I've written on marital relationships uh in the past big study on marital correspondence Mm. uh for the elizabethan period the love letter you know i always come back to to the love letter um the love letter is an extraordinary um phenomenon um we've got some really early examples of love letters and these are these are love letters that are you know that are used to i mean the the love letter is in, in its pure form is a love is a letter that is that is purely supposed to convey love. Yeah. So it's a sort of, sh- you know, very short. Um, one of the earliest uh, examples in a Western tradition are the letters of Peter Abelard and Eloise. So we're talking about sort of 11th, uh, 12th centuries here. Um, and these are, these are just a superb collection uh, of letters. This sort of pair um, who... Abelard is a medieval French scholastic philosopher... He's one of the sort of leading uh, theologians of his age. Um, he enters the household of Fulbert, who's a secular canon at the Cathedral of Notre Dame uh, in Paris. He falls in love and has a clandestine affair with Fulbert's niece, Eloise, who's a, one of these sort of... You, you'd probably refer to her as a blue-stocking nowadays, but mm-hmm. incredibly learned and erudite and you know has been taught Latin, Greek, Hebrew... Uh, as a result of the affair um she becomes pregnant uh gives birth to a son uh, they they marry under rather sort of um strained circumstances um she first sort of refuses to marry then admits the you know the relationship and the birth publicly she's sent off to live as a nun uh, abelard is then um the uncle basically arranges for him to be beaten up and castrated Woo. Yeah. Um, but what we have is a series of letters between the pair. And I'll just read you one of these, which is a letter from, uh, to Eloise that Abelard wrote. To forget in the case of love is the most necessary penance and the most difficult. It is easy to recount our faults, how many through indiscretion have made themselves a second pleasure of this instead of confessing them with humility. The only way to return to God is by neglecting the creature we have adored and adoring the God whom we have neglected. This may appear harsh, but it must be done if we would be saved. To make it more easy, consider why I pressed you to your vow before I took mine. So the two of them going off into into sort of different religious establishments. And pardon my sincerity and the design I have of meriting your neglect and hatred if I conceal nothing from you. When I saw myself oppressed by my misfortune I was furiously jealous and regarded all men as my rivals love has more of distrust than assurance I was apprehensive of many things because of my many defects and being tormented with fear because of my own example I imagined your heart so accustomed to love that it could not be long without entering on a new engagement and so it goes and so it goes on I mean they are they, they are really complex letters you know yes there is this sort of purity of love in there but they are also you know they're also intellectual exercises written in latin
1: yeah
2: uh, at the time and um you know absolutely Absolutely superb. But I, I've got, I have other letters to sort of return to. Great. Well, I'm going to
1: carry on talking about letters as well. Carrying oh, on with my theme of curating. Good. I, I was going to show you somewhere here, I've got a notebook stuffed with all the letters that my wife and I wrote to each other when we were youngsters, but I can't see it now, so I probably put it somewhere very safe in a box, but it's, it's not particularly visible. So I want to go back to this idea of curating, love. So we've talked about curating the kind of padlocks the padlock of love which are examples of commitment security attachment unity permanence um, but there's a very different type of letter and uh, which you you see in verona going back to romeo and juliet at what's known as juliet's tomb mm. do you know about juliet's no, tomb tell well me. so romeo and juliet uh it is believed well i know about, Rome, you you know her about romeo and the tomb in the in the right, right, in well, the play so it is understood that Shakespeare's wrote for Romeo and Juliet and he was inspired by some, some real people, some real warring families in fair Verona. Yeah. Now, so in Verona in the present day, legions of people go there and they leave letters mm. about love, of love, concerning love to Juliet. They write to Juliet. Gosh. This is something that... Um, began in the 30s. Yeah. and So we have all of these letters that have
2: survived. Aha! Uh, we don't. We no, do. No, we, we do. We do. We this, is okay. the, this is the truly okay. wonderful
1: thing about it. No, we absolutely do. And um, the first ones we think happened started to appear um, in this house, which was believed to be linked to Juliet in the 1930s, um, and probably as a result of a film in the 30s, yep. one of the earliest films of Romeo and Juliet. And the attendant there, who was a, a veteran of the First World War, um, spoke a bit of English. And he started to look after them and care for them and reply to them. Oh, no! Which is wonderful. So they've got um, this extraordinary... They get about 5,000 of these things a year. And they... Um, they, they are now a permanent body of Juliet secretaries, I think right. they call themselves, Gosh. who respond and they care and they curate for these, these, these letters so there's, there's an amazing archive of love but what's interesting about it is that these letters are all they're very different to the padlocks which is a, si- a symbol of, of commitment and unity these are all about intercession these are all about i've got a problem and they mm. write to juliet but you get a completely different sense of the type of love that's going on mm. so a lot of it's to do with heartache and loss and some, some wonderful ones exist dear juliet I live on the third floor. My parents don't allow my boyfriend to come to my house, so I have to sneak him in, but it's very difficult. Can you tell me how Romeo got to visit you? Tell me his (laughs) technique for climbing up to your room. Thanks, kisses. That was from Carrie from Lausanne in Switzerland. Dear Juliet, I'm writing to you on Valentine's Day, but unfortunately I don't have a Romeo and I'm very sad. I'm not a young girl, but a woman who will turn 50 next March. I've always loved very deeply, but who knows why they have all betrayed me. I hope that after so much suffering, sacrifice and compromise, that I too can be truly happy that's from a lady from milan one more dear juliet you're the only person i can ask how do you french kiss and what does it mean to make out i read an article about you in the paper and if we write to you i get a letter back we get extra credit and i need a lot of extra credit <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was from an american girl from new york so we got a um a, another archive of love letters
2: yeah
1: we've an archive of love letters. Um,
2: well, they're kind of love letters to her, aren't they? Love letters
1: and to her about their own kind of love problem.
2: So it's a unique type of it's love. It's almost lesson. like um, it's almost like a sort of an agony aunt column. Yeah. You know, writing with with lovers, lovers, complaints and, and across history you know we have a, a remarkable um, range of documents that allow us to look at people with with complaints to do with love. Yeah. You know so and what we've got there these are people who are not writing to other lovers but they are writing you know about unrequited either un, unrequited love or the need for love that that kind of you know burning desire to sort of feel loved and wanted and satisfied and to be able to you know share your life with somebody and experience that you know that sort of you know that sort of romantic ideal we live in a world where love is just soaked into our our very culture i was riding in the car with my daughter uh Mm -hmm. the other day my six-year-old and she has her own spotify playlist and she sits in the front of the car and plays it and she said to me daddy why are these songs all about love? Mm. Why do the girls always sing about boys? And she said, I, I don't really listen to many boys' songs, but do boys sing sing love songs about girls? And I just thought, yes. What is it about our culture that love is all around? Mm. But to go back to what the point I was making about the unrequited love and people having psychological or emotional problems with love, I mean, you can pick that up all over the place. You know, in sort of medieval confessor's manuals, oh, right. you know, they're often... Because people would have come to confessors with all sorts of problems. So the confessors are given instructions of how to deal with people with those particular problems. Or if you think about, um, you know, physicians, uh, 17th, Elizabethan and 17th century physicians, um, women would often go to them with, you know, almost sort of suicidal, you know, problems to do yeah. if they'd been jolted by, by loved ones. Church courts as well. Courts, um, you know, marital problems and problems to do with love often end up there because they end up in violence or infanticide or, you know, unwanted pregnancy or promissory cases where where a man has promised to marry somebody. The woman has ended up pregnant. He's then left and she's left with a, with a child and, you know, can take him to court yeah. to you know, force him to pay.
1: I think the interesting thing here as a historian is that love has this ability to completely cut through all of the cultural baggage that everyone has. Um, This is a Dear Juliet letter which makes the point perfectly. Dear Juliet, I am madly in love. I know you get millions of letters with love problems written from around the world. I write today to ask you for strength. I live in India where my parents won't allow me to marry the guy that I love because he is from a different caste. He's the only guy I have felt so strongly about. I know I will have to fight my family for him, and I am ready. I ask you only for strength. Goodness me! Isn't that the business? Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. Um, but you know, you know, this great example of how love can um, cut through this this kind of baggage of race, religion, yeah. whatever it might be. It, yeah. it does. It brings 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 people together, which yeah. which creates a unique opportunity for the historian. To understand what's going on, but also a, a very significant problem yeah. um, to actually understand it. Properly. I mean, lo-
2: love is also a really good way into something like the um, political world of Henry VIII. Mm-hmm. I know that you've done some work uh, with Susie Lipscomb yeah. on Hi, Susie. on Henry. Hello, Susie, um, and you know, and familiar with uh, the love letters to Anne Boleyn, um, you know, and. Mm, you know, Henry VIII is well known for his six wives and, you know, his sort of carnal appetites and moving from one to to another. Um, you can look at that in one way and you can look at it from the perspective of dynastic politics and how he sort of falls in and out of love with different people. I'm not going to sort of go into uh, Henry VIII's love letters in any great detail. They are incredibly intimate, though. They are among the only letters that he actually writes himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're some of the only autograph letters that survive. Um, he refers to Anne's duckies, so mm-hmm. her, her his nickname for her breasts. So they're, they're quite sort of sexualized letters. Um, and we can follow, if historians can trace through the letters and, and various sort of other sort of commentators at court exactly how... His affections um, for Anne grew, sustained themselves and then f- fell off uh, when she didn't, you know, please him. Um, we know also that they the two of them were exchanging love poetry uh, as well. Uh, and, he, you know, there's a sort of he was he was mentoring her. But I think also um, what's interesting when we look at politics in the court at Henry VIII, that love is a really good prism. Not only because the women who he marries are connected to factions, but if you look at the culture of the court, you know, courtly love Mm. is so important, so endemic, and becomes, actually, it becomes an important part of the sort of chivalric culture. So there's this this sort of... um, There are these sort of traditions that are associated with, you know... um, with Burgundian culture, chivalric culture that moves across from from uh, northern France uh, in the sort of um, during Henry the Seventh's reign and is sort of and is increasing uh, under Henry under Henry the Eighth, um, that's wrapped up with a lot of the sort of uh, culture and pageantry of chivalry, and I think what happens is that that become in some way what is what is innocent. So this kind of relationship between a, a knight and his lady there 's a sort of an honorific thing, and the sort of you know the the lady having a champion and giving a favor and a handkerchief to them and and they wear that on the lance that becomes um, sullied mm. it it becomes toxic, yeah, and what you see is that court is that culture of courtly love becoming a really dangerous game, and you see that with um with the downfall of Anne Boleyn, and the courtiers who were supposed to have been her lovers being executed, and this also brings us again to um, unrequited love, and one of the sort of one of the best one of the best sources for this is in fact poetry, right. Tudor court poetry, the poetry of Thomas Wyatt, mm-hmm. and again, again, this is connected to it's connected to court culture, it's connected to. This sort of courtly love, and the idea that a courtier would be an accomplished individual who would write poetry. But what's interesting is the kind of poetry that they're doing, and there are a lot of them: Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, Sir Thomas Wyatt. These are these are major politicians, major courtiers, um, who are writing in a Petrarchan tradition, so the Petrarchan sonnet. The Petrarchan sonnet, if you look at the original models, they are the sort of pastoral models. Um, but what happens is that they it's what they do with it. It's what they do with those models of poetry. And I've got I'm just going to read you uh, one of my favourite um, Wyatt poems, which is a poem called Whoso List to Hunt. Whoso List to Hunt, I Know Where Is and Hind but as for me alas i may no more the vain travail hath wearied me so sore i am of then that farthest cometh behind yet may i by no means my wearied mind draw from the deer but as she fleeth afore, fainting i follow i leave off therefore sithence in a net i seek to hold the wind who list her hunt i put him out of doubt as well as I may spend his time in vain and graven with diamonds in letters plain, there is written her fair neck round about, no me tangier, for Caesar's I am and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. Nolly me tangier means do not touch. Mm-hmm. It's basically the property of Caesar. So what we've got here is the kind of depiction of the sort of visceral hunt chasing a deer, Chasing the Hind, um, you know, and it's, on one, On the one hand, it is about, unre- it's a poem about unrequited love. It's, if you compare it to the Petrarchan original that it's based on, it's much more savage. So you've got all of this sort of, you know, travail, you've got all this sort of fainting, drawing from the deer, the savagery of the hunt, and then you've got this sort of, the, you know, they they catch up with the deer and around the deer's neck is this collar basically saying, Don't touch me, mm. I'm the property of Caesar. Now, read autobi read biographically, people assume people have in the past thought that this is to do with Anne Boleyn And that basically Wyatt gets gets caught up in the whole Anne Boleyn downfall. He isn't executed, but he's questioned over it. Caesar is is Henry VIII. Yeah. But what you have is this you have a series of courtiers who during these um, dangerous years of the fifteen thirties fall out of favour, go into exile, so are removed from court, and during that period they're writing this kind of poetry which may have echoes of the savagery of politics. And there is a connection, I think a really clear connection, between love and politics here that sort of intertwines, that isn't necessarily just to do with Henry's bed. It's not to do with Henry's, you um, you know, changing... Feelings towards his wives, but there is a there's a there's a linguistic slippage as well between political love. You know, somebody that you love can also be a political ally. Mm. So there's that sort of slippage. So love is not just about the love letter, the love poem, um, unrequited love. It's also about the savagery of politics. Oh, so good. So much is about the savagery of politics.
1: Uh, I'm just going to finish up now um, with with another another uh, example, which is. From my a slight obsession with um, archives of love letters, so we've talked about the Juliet tomb, and this one is um, this one's really extraordinary. Where would you least expect there to be an archive of love letters? I can tell you, it's at the Museum of the History of Political Repression in Tomsk. So it's a Siberian me. Uh, NKVD Soviet secret police Stalinist. Wow. Um it's where it's, Are it's, they intercepting love letters or? No, um so it's it's a location in Siberia where a lot of intellectuals Russian intellectuals were exiled. Right. So um and it was it was a, a a former building of the what became known as the secret police the NKVD from 1923 to 1944 and a lot of the prisoners wrote letters. Yeah. And very few of them were sent and a lot of
2: Oh gosh.
1: A lot of the letters were, if they were sent, they were heavily censored. So some of them are fantastic. They're, they're on very thin paper um, with microscopic writing to cram as much information mm, as they possibly mm, can into a tiny letter mm. and then with heavy lines of right. censorship over the top of them. So some of them went through, were censored, but often the last letters that were written before they were executed mm. were, they knew, these, these prisoners knew what was coming to them. Mm. They wrote letters of love and they were never sent back to, to their relatives so they all survive in this extraordinarily and, 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 and you know rather upsetting mm. um, archive which, which bears witness to, to Stalinist repression there's a, a couple of wonderful ones here um, this is from a chap called Alexei no matter where I look or what I think about everything seems to me gloomy worrisome and generally hopeless and only my home with my dear and loved ones seems to me clear and joyful a star that illuminates my way um and uh, another he he does the most wonderful drawings and sketches to his daughter um some sort of colorful hand drawn postcards which if you consider the fact that this guy 's starving to death um in the process of writing them is is really very touching indeed um and there's there 's another one in um in which it kind of highlights the way that love can break down, and you can have a different type of love for your wife as you can for your children because he writes quite a sharp letter to his wife saying, your entire letter is about the price of food. It would be better to write in detail about the children and about your life. And he writes, kiss Marta for me and tell her that Boba thinks only of her. Aww. And it's massively upsetting. Um, but they're kept, they are now curated, they are looked after, you can right. see them, historians can study them. Um, and it's, uh, I've not been, I really want to go. So if you're anywhere near Tomsk, <laughs> go to this museum. I'll just say once more, it's called the Museum of the History
2: of Political repression. Goodness, me. I mean, the sad thing about that is that what you've got this sort of the, these emotions that have been inscribed on paper and expected to be sent out and they've never arrived. Yeah. So they're you know it's empty. I, I, I the love letter I collect love letters. Huh. Something all, all else sorts you collect all sorts, of, all sorts of collections. Well, I collect I collect editions of letters. He also I, collects recipe books. Ladies <laughs> and, gentlemen, and you should listen to our podcast on the recipe because that's should. fascinating. You should. Um, the During Love Letters, which is a collection of 17th century love letters sent by Sir Edward During to his beloved wife, Unton. And these are at the Kentish, uh, in Kent, at Canterbury, uh, whatever their uh, record office is now called. It used to be the Centre of Kentish Studies. It's probably it's probably changed. But there's a, it's a little slim little volume uh, compiled by Alison Cresswell. And we've maybe got sort of, I don't know, 30, 40 letters here, um, that are really, really, really touching from the sixteen twenties through to sixteen forty two and, and they, they detail all the sort of things that you were talking about earlier on. But one of the one of the simplest is basically just one that he sent because the messenger was leaving and he just wanted to tell his wife he loved her. Oh. And he addresses it to my dearest and best friend, the Lady During, dear Jewel, though the messenger do call in haste, Yet thou must have a line, my true love to thee, and my blessing to my children. Wishing myself a hundred times with thee, I rest. Thy ever faithful and affectionate, Edward Dering. Mm. Isn't that lovely? And lovely one. And, and because it's Valentine's Day, mm. yes, the earliest, earliest recorded in English Valentine's letter. Great, was, let's go for it. From the Paston collection. The Pastons mm. were a were a family in Norfolk. Uh, with sort of medieval through to um, henry the through to early early Tudor and it 's a letter from Marjorie Bruce, uh, who later marries John Paston the third um, and it 's kept in the British Library. If you go to the British Library, you can see the manuscript of it and it 's written before they 're married and it 's dated february fourteen seventy seven right worshipful and well beloved Valentine. In my most humble wise I recommend me unto you, and heartily I thank you for the letter which you sent me by John Beckerton, whereby I understand and know that you be purposed to come to Topcroft in short time and without any errand or matter, but only to have a conclusion of the matter betwixt my father and you, basically the arrangement of their marriage. I would be most glad of any creature alive so that the matter might grow to a effect, and there, as you say... And you come and find the matter no more toward than you did aforetime. You would no more put my father and my lady, my mother, to no cost nor business for that cause a good while after, which causeth mine heart to be full heavy. And if that you come and the matter take to none effect, then should I be much more sorry and full of heaviness. In other words, she's basically the the negotiations over the dowry aren't going very well. And as for myself, I have done and understand in the matter that I can or may, as God knoweth. So she's tried to intervene with her mother. And I let you plainly understand that my father will no more money part with all in that behalf, but £100.50 and marks, which is right far from the accomplishment of your desire, wherefore... If that you could be content with that good, and my poor person, I would be the merriest maiden on ground. And if you think not yourself so satisfied, or that you might have much more good, as I have understand by you afore, good, true and loving Valentine, that you take no such labour upon you as come more for the matter, but let it pass and never more to be spoken of, as I may be your true lover and bead woman during my life. In other words, she'll pray for him, for his life. No more unto you at this time, but Almighty Jesus preserve you, both body and soul, by your valentine, Marjorie Brews. Isn't that incredible? Is wonderful. Do we have a date for that? We have what? a date, yeah, uh, February 1477. So you can see there the kind of all the sort of medieval conventions of letter yeah. writing. 1477. But, ne- but nevertheless it's, um, you know, there is still breathing through it. Yeah. This sort of, this sense of emotion and love and behind it you have a a real relationship that is a, you know, a medieval woman who wants to be married? Who's trying to, you know, who's trying to persuade her parents, her father, to basically stump up more money so that this guy who she marries, yeah. who she wants to marry, will marry her. Well, wonderful
1: one to end with. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. What have we done? We've done padlocks. We've done writing
2: on walls. We've done love letters. Stalin. Uh, we've done. Uh, we've sort of done biological and psychological approaches yep. to to love. Bit of Henry VIII always required. Bit of Henry VIII. Yeah. Uh, A bit of Thomas Wyatt. Oh, I like that. Yeah,
1: it's been really good fun. Everyone, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. Subscribe
2: to the podcast and tell all your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected on At Unexpected Pod. We are truly proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and a slew of other great shows. And if you find out
1: more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months, which might include live shows and a book... A book and (laughs) And a live show. A big book and Um, a little book and other books. (laughs) Check it out on historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.